0: There's a story among the Navajo people. It's about a girl, the daughter of first man and first woman, who grows up to be revered goddess in a time when monsters stalk the earth. With a young man named Jonah A, the son, she gave birth to twin boys.
1: Her name is Changing Woman, and she helped to guide them and, and raise them in a way that they were, became warriors. But before they went to the sun, they had to go through so many challenges, but also to prove to the sun that they were the children of the sun.
0: The woman speaking, that's Wahela Johns. She's a citizen of the Navajo Nation. She's also an advocate for climate justice and solar energy. The story she's telling, it's part of the Navajo's genesis.
1: Yes, and then the sun gave them tools and weapons to come back to our home to, to defeat the monsters and slay the monsters. And there's teachings where as the twins, the hero twins, were slain, these monsters, some of them went back into the earth.
0: At risk of giving too much away, it's also metaphor and allegory.
1: And a lot of teachings come from that. There's teachings there that say we're not supposed to dig in the earth. We're not supposed to extract anything from the earth. If we do that, it's going to harm us. They say the oil, the coal, all of these deposits of um, ore and minerals, we're not supposed to bother them and that um, they're supposed to be left alone. If we do, that's going to create the harm. Um, It's going to create all the monsters again.
2: A matter of degrees. I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. And I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson.
0: My name is Julian Brave Noisecat.
2: And
3: together, we're telling stories for the climate curious. So today we have a special episode of this podcast. It is about the long and winding path towards an energy transition in an often overlooked place, the Navajo Nation, the largest Indian reservation in the United States.
2: And we also have a special guest, a co-host on this episode, a journalist and a policy expert named Julian Brave Noisecat, and he's going to help guide us through this story. So Julian, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners?
0: Well, hello, everyone. My name is Julian Noisecat. I'm a citizen of the Sekwetmukh uh, Nation and a descendant of the Statlyonk Nation. And I guess I'm also a a policy expert, which, which feels like someone just put a little... A little pep in my step. Uh, I'm excited. to. <laughs> you
2: got promoted there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they mostly just call me a hack usually. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Which is uh, my my dad was a sports journalist. So I feel like hack is like actually a real term of praise and, and endearment. Well, whatever the term, we are excited to dive into this story with you, Julian. And would you just Tell us, what is the story that you're going to bring to our
0: listeners today? So the woman speaking was Wahela Johns. She's a citizen of the Navajo Nation, the executive director of Native Renewables, an organization that's bringing solar power to Navajo homes. And she's also a friend. And the story that she was telling was the story of Changing Woman, a goddess who brings life and transition to the Navajo people at the dawn of this world and that felt like an appropriate place to start for a story about a woman, a nation, and an energy system in a period of immense change. The story begins in Black Mesa, Arizona.
1: Black Mesa to us is regarded as a female mountain. You know, there's teachings about from elders that said as long as we take care of her, she's going to take care of us and and be the provider for good rain, for good moisture, for um for a life a good life to live.
0: Can you explain to us a little bit about what life is like in, in Black Mesa?
1: Sure. It's beautiful. I love it. It's a high desert region. You know, where we live is about I don't know, maybe seventy four hundred feet in elevation. All of our roads are mostly dirt and we we just to get home it takes, you know, it's like traveling about in an hour of dirt road just to get home. My grandmother also, you know, is a rancher. She's raised um, lots of sheep, lots of cattle and horses. And so that's, I think, the beauty of our people, especially in Black Mesa region where many residents live in rural areas that uh, manage livestock and they manage, you know, they're farmers and they, they take caretake of home.
0: Wahala's mother is from Black Mesa too. Her father is from nearby, south of the Hopi Reservation, which is surrounded by the Navajo, kind of like Lesotho in South Africa, or as some Navajo like to joke, like a hole in a piece of Indian fry bread. But we'll get back to that in a bit. To this day, the Navajo Nation is a hard, scrabble place. About a third of homes lack running water, and a tenth don't have electricity. Wahala's work has brought her to homesteads across the reservation.
1: There's an elder. He's probably, like, 70. And actually, I met him through a ceremony, and he said, hey, you should come over to my house. And he doesn't have power. And so we get into his home, and he's, um, you know, he has a generator that he uses to generate power for light at night. And he has, like, a VCR and a little television, but he's able to watch even just, like, bull riding, you know, just kind of reruns of bull riding shows. What else does he have? He has lots of flashlights. Batteries are everywhere. You could tell that he buys a lot of batteries to power his flashlights.
0: Elsewhere, Wahela's seen families run extension cords between houses, charge electronics in cars, and even drive to see relatives just so they can use their outlets.
1: So that that's kind of what we've seen, and families can pay anywhere from... I don't know, we've calculated about $150 to sometimes $700 a month just on fuels, um, depending on what season it is. And usually in the winter, it's more.
0: What's odd about all this is that the Navajo Nation isn't exactly an energy-poor place. In fact, until recently, the reservation was home to two of the largest coal strip mines in the world. In recent decades, as many as five coal-burning power plants surrounded Navajo lands— For many Navajo, power lines connecting coal to major cities like Phoenix and Los Angeles have come to symbolize this vastly unequal landscape. To better understand the history that brought us here, I called Andrew Curley, a Navajo geographer at the University of Arizona and, well, a homie. We're interested in asking you about Ancient astronaut theory, as we understand, your people were contacted by aliens.
4: Oh, this is a History Channel program. (laughs) Okay, now I know what this podcast is about.
0: Andrew says that if you want to understand the energy politics of the Navajo Nation, you have to understand the post-World War II boom in cities like Phoenix and states like Arizona when aliens came to the Southwest. You know, like the foreign kind, not...
4: ET? So the coal industry, and especially like this large scale coal industry, enters the Navajo nation at a time of really profound transition. So you have the first boarding school generation coming to adulthood. You have many Navajo men returning back from military services, either at World War II or Korea. You have... um, transition of Arizona around the Navajo Nation from just a very sparsely populated Western cattle state. And then it suddenly became part of this boom, this post-war boom uh, in what's called the Sun Belt. Almost overnight,
0: Arizona's economy transformed from small and quiet, cowboys, ranchers, miners, that sort of a thing, to a boomtown of defense contractors, semiconductor manufacturers, and
4: suburbanites. So you start to see the need for water increase, and you start to see the need for energy and electricity increase. And that's why they were looking up in the Navajo Nation for sources of energy.
0: At the same time, the United States government was pushing a formal policy of Indian assimilation, relocation, and termination. That was the official slogan, termination.
4: I think it was from 1955 to 1962, um, the, the federal government sponsored a relocation program. And this was like one of the worst, I think, legacies of, it's probably one of the least known, but like most, obvious forms of cultural genocide that you have with with what the federal government was was attempting to do. And this was to relocate indigenous families from the reservation communities into cities to try to, to assimilate them into um, into waged labor work. And so that relocation program was happening uh, just before all these coal leases were signed.
0: You remember that hole I mentioned in the piece of fry bread, otherwise known as the Hopi Reservation? This is where that hole becomes really important. You see, in 1974, Congress passed a law called the Navajo-Hopi Land Settlement Act, designed to clarify the boundaries between the two tribes. Not that that was really a problem. Navajo and Hopi had lived side by side and traded for generations. But as Andrew Wahela and just about every other researcher and Navajo I've asked will tell you, that mass of Indians was starting to get in the way. Funny how us Indians tend to do that. Peabody Coal, a corporation interested in the fossil fuels underneath Navajo and Hopi lands, needed Congress to clarify the boundary lines between the reservations so that they could more easily identify which tribe they needed to do business with. The partition ultimately displaced some ten to 15,000 Navajo families. Their land, their livelihoods, their homes, gone.
1: Many families and people I heard passed away from heartbreak, elders, because they missed their homeland so much and they couldn't return back to that. Uh, many families or people, they resorted to alcoholism, substance abuse,
0: Even just to access their homelands, relocated Navajo were told they needed to get permits. Some, like Wahela's grandmother, resisted.
1: I actually witnessed grandmothers being arrested for defending themselves to have a ceremony on their own land. And the police coming in and telling them, you don't have a permit to do your ceremony here. You need to go and file a, a paperwork at the government office to say that you're going to have a ceremony here. And the grandmothers were like, no, this is where we grew up. <laughs> this is where we're going to be. My umbilical cord is here, and I am not going. And this is when I think I was like 11, and I didn't understand any of the things that were like the laws and, and until I started to read um, more about the dispute and understand that All of this was because of coal. It was because of money.
0: What Congress and Peabody didn't anticipate was the fighting spirit of the Navajo at Black Mesa.
4: The story of Black Mesa resistance is resisting colonialism in its different iterations over time. And so many people who moved into that region, into Black Mesa actually never were taken by Kit Carson or the U.S. Army to Bosque Redondo, to to Fort Sumner.
0: Curley's referring to the four-year exodus known as the Long Walk, when the United States military led the Navajo on a forced march out of their homeland in 1864.
4: So they claimed they'd never been conquered, right? They never actually were a party to the Treaty of 1868. And so they're saying Black Mesa creates its own kind of regional identity as of, as already as a defiance against the way that the Navajo Nation was constructed going back to the 1860s within the U.S. Um, colonial system. And a lot of those lands, that's where the two coal mines that eventually opened were located, was right in the heart of the Black Mesa region.
0: In the 1970s, at the height of the American Indian Movement, the grandmothers at Black Mesa invited some of the movement's spiritual leaders down to Arizona to support their resistance.
1: In the early 70s, that's when some of the grandmothers, when the Wounded Knee happened up in South Dakota, grandmothers went up there and asked their spiritual leaders, we need support down here. We have a fight going on here in in Black Mesa area. Can you help us bring your ceremony? We need prayers.
0: Well, Halo was just a kid when a lot of this was going down, but she remembers a gathering that took place at Big Mountain on partitioned Navajo lands. Hopi and Navajo elders were there together, breaking bread.
1: Wow, like, that's significant. You know, you hear about Navajo and Hopi land dispute and conflict, but here you have the most traditional people from Navajo and Hopi, you know, coming together and eating together and laughing and supporting each other. And I remember Thomas Benyanke saying, you young people, all of you, help the elders here. Resist. Stay here. Learn as much as you can about defending this land. You guys are protectors. But I, I, I'll never forget that.
0: The story of Peabody Coal is as damning a tale as any told about the crooked dealings of the colonists who swindled this continent away from its first peoples.
1: You see this type of story internationally everywhere, like in indigenous people. Other indigenous territories have the same story where big corporations come in and are able to get access and rights to water, coal, and remove people. And I think that's a horrible business plan. I think it's a horrible way to go about development and energy extraction. And that's our story in Black Mesa and that it fed these huge cities to grow, you know, to thrive from this resource at the expense of human rights, at the expense of our, our health and our well being. And I think that's the, that has what is like shaped my understanding of energy development in the United States and like how corrupt it is and how it favors other communities than ours and our people.
0: Oh, and a few decades later, It was revealed that the Hopi tribe's lawyer, Mormon guy named John Boyden, he was also working for Peabody.
1: You know, the fact that he um, worked for Peabody and the tribe didn't know that and, you know, was able to leverage this corporation to have access to subsurface mineral rights is crazy.
0: Quote, nothing on record indicates that John Boyden ever provided the Hopi Tribal Council with any substantial analysis of the Peabody lease. That's from Colorado University Boulder law professor Charles Wilkinson in a 1996 paper. It continues. There is no indication that Boyden explained the magnitude of the operation and its probable impacts that, for example, the two mines on Black Mesa would constitute the largest coal strip mining complex in the country.
1: This is the deceit, you know, that we don't hear about too much and that in order to get access to lands and mineral rights, it's stepping over and on indigenous rights and people who have been there living on this caretaking of this land for so long.
3: Um, And it's criminal. It's really just, Julian, sounds like the height of of injustice and these kind of back alley dealings that are greasing the skids to make it all possible.
0: There's a tendency, I think, to imagine these kinds of self-dealing, underhanded dealing things as exceptional, you know, as, you know, those are the unusual cases. But I think when you look at things, you know, spanning from the leasing of Manhattan from the Lenape people all the way to this history, you know, I think when you're talking about how powerful people have related to native people, it it actually becomes much more of a common thread.
2: Yeah, and I think the other thing that it really brings up is this idea of sacrifice zones, that, you know, we can build the largest coal strip mine complex on indigenous territory and, you know, poison communities elsewhere because somehow those areas don't matter, that they can be sacrificed for the fossil fuel economy.
0: I think even this story stretches that concept to, you know, its absurd limits, right? For Boyden... This community wasn't just sacrificial. It, it it was also, you know, for the taking. They could be had.
2: Yeah, and what did you learn about the consequences of this taking by Peabody?
0: So despite or perhaps because of Boyden and Peabody, the Navajo Nation transformed into a coal economy, kind of like West
4: Virginia or Wyoming. Kids coming out of high school, looking for work, not having... They could either go to, you know, find a job at the coal mine or maybe join the army and go off to Vietnam. And so, you know, you have these stark choices um, in front of them. And so they end up finding work around where they grew up and where they live. And then over time, they start to identify with that work. And they see that the money that they're doing, working in the coal mine, is, is helping them to not only take care of their families, but also their, their relatives is fulfilling kinship obligations, bringing in resources needed uh, for the community. And so it's seen as this benefit.
0: And as coal took off, water and pollution became one of the most prominent focal points in the Black Mesa resistance.
4: Black Mesa mine in particular was the construction of a slurry that took this water, aquifer water, from the end aquifer underneath Black Mesa And it took that water to move coal from the mine site to the Mojave generating station, 273 miles to the west in Laughlin, Nevada. And so that was used to transport the coal, and then it was just wasted. That's all that water was used for. It was just as a cheaper way to transport coal. And so that became one of the first environmental contestations about coal in the Navajo Nation. is like, how does it treat and use water?
0: This is where Wahala started picking up the work started by her grandmothers.
4: So
1: that, that's where I got involved as far as seeing the impact of how much water Peabody Coal Company was using every day and how it had a big impact on the stability of our aquifer. We started to see all of the springs dry up in the peripheral areas of the aquifer, um, subsidence, And these are all indicators that, you know, something's going on with your groundwater and started organizing. And that's how I was introduced into understanding Peabody Coal Company, understanding their history, understanding my history.
0: Andrew, on the other hand, first started looking into this history 12 years ago when he was a researcher at Diné College. Just so you know, Diné, that's the the word the Navajo call themselves in their own language. And like much else on the reservation, the day College was built by coal money.
4: So what happens is over time, you have these institutions to rely upon these industries for a large part of their revenue. So what they end up doing is gaining like, okay, so the last year when I was doing my research in 2013, coal was about 25% of non-federal revenues. So there was 25% of discretionary spending for the Navajo Nation. And then oil and natural gas were another significant part and land leases were another like 24%. So all of these resources and the money is derived from resources in various forms support the Navajo Nation government. And then what does that government do? That government creates jobs for people. You know Max Weber's
0: whole Protestant work ethic thing? Well, Curly, if I can paraphrase a bit, talks about what I might describe as a Navajo work ethic.
4: And then I also talk about the moral economy of co-workers, basically how people who have worked in the industry since the 1970s, um, who had developed a livelihood and a sense of uh, identity around that work, you know, came to support that kind of industry and, and said, you know, this is something that keeps us on the land. They identified it as having a positive benefit for, for not only the Navajo Nation, but also for like communities and culture. There's high unemployment in the reservation. There's little else to do that pays as much. And so, yeah, they understand it's a Faustian bargain at that point. And, then, and they're very critical of the whole structure of the coal economy. So there was a, a, a degree of critical analysis among co-workers themselves who knew the industry better than anybody and knew how it was exploiting them, them their bodies and, the health and their health and also the environment. So there's a range of experiences.
0: And much like in Appalachia, Northumberland and the Soviet Union, organized co-workers on the Navajo Nation wielded significant power. Take the 2010 Navajo Nation presidential election between Ben Shelley and Linda Lovejoy, for example. A race Lovejoy was expected to win.
4: And she had overwhelmingly won the primary vote, like beating all her opponents by a lot. And so people saw that she had support and that she was like really likely to become the next Navajo Nation president.
0: There was even a piece in the New York Times about Lovejoy and her platform to transition the Navajo Nation to clean energy. The headline, Navajo hope to shift from coal to wind and sun. The coal workers and their union, the United Mine Workers of America, they didn't take it so well.
4: All of them kind of mobilized to to defeat Linda Lovejoy. So and, and they did it through a lot of uh, chicanery, you know, saying that like there was this tradition in Navajo stories that say that when, uh, when a woman becomes leader, then the whole world collapses or so something along those lines,
0: Lovejoy lost. But the push for a life after Cole continued. In 2006, a few years before Lovejoy ran for president, the Black Mesa Mine shut down. Ironically, it was the market and not policy or activism that turned the tide.
4: In fact, it didn't die because the Navajo Nation said, no, we're not going to do it anymore. It died because the the utility companies said, we're not going to buy your coal anymore.
0: For Wahela and her allies, it was a Pyrrhic victory.
1: And so when they closed it, we were excited. It was like a bittersweet thing because we couldn't really celebrate because also it meant 200 Navajo jobs (laughs) were lost, and that means our own relatives um, that
0: work there. And it was right around then that a new idea came into Navajo politics—transition.
4: In fact, it goes back to 2006. That's when I think transition enters the vocabulary of Navajo politics, and that was a just transition coalition that was in a set of organizations, it was a coalition, right? You know, with, like different organizations coming together to try to push the Navajo Nation to move away from coal into, in their minds, clean energy technology. Solar, I think, was the first thing proposed and then eventually wind. Since 2006, we've been thinking through and dealing with this question of transition within the Navajo Nation. Andrew
0: recalls a community meeting in 2012 when the Navajo were in the throes of figuring out what that transition would look like. Wahala was there, Peabody Coal was there, community-based groups like the Black Mesa Water Coalition and Black Mesa United were there.
4: So all of those people were there trying to push onto the Navajo Nation Council their agenda. And each of them had like a different story about what they wanted to do with this land. Like... Black Mesa Water Coalition wanted to put solar panels on that land as a symbolic reclaiming of that land that was once for dirty energy will now be dedicated to the production of clean energy. And Black Mesa United, they wanted that land to return back to the people whose uh, grazing permits were on that land, who had some sort of historical connection to those lands. And then Peabody Coal, at that time, their interest was to maintain it as it were. It was still under their control. So they were just like observing what was going on. But they may or may not have had an interest in combining the former Black Mesa mine complex with the Cayenne mine and making one super uh, mining area. So each of these actors were out there testifying. You know, we don't want you to put your solar panels here. We want it to come back to us. And then people's like happy. was sitting by happy to watch Dine people fight about it. But um, they had their own interests at play. And when I was interviewing one of the members of Black Mesa United uh, on the side of the um, of the chapter house, the Peabody guy was sitting, standing there, and he was kind of trying to encourage that person mm-hmm. who I was interviewing with the kinds of answers he wanted that person to give. He was like, well, this helped you to keep your your livelihood, right? This helped you to stay close to home, right? Like, So it was like creating propaganda more than like, trying to represent you know, what people were really thinking and how people were impacted by, by the mining. So just for context, this is before Wahela had started
0: Native Renewables. And here she's found herself and her vision at a bit of a crossroads. She's been fighting Peabody Coal for a long time, but she's not really sure what a vision for post Peabody Coal looks like. And at first she looked into utility scale projects giant solar farms that have been deployed in other parts of the country.
1: I love the idea of using reclamation lands for utility scale, but I also learned so much from my own people. It doesn't feel good to use any kind of land (laughs) uh, for utility scale and like flatten it and like put a solar farm. I don't know. There's something around that that I had. I was challenged with in my own community as well to take a natural, you know, landscape and turn it into a solar farm. Like to me, that, that hurt.
0: (laughs) So she started thinking smaller, more domestic.
1: There was a lot of people that came up to me during presentations and they would say, what about residential solar? There's a lot of families that don't have access to electricity and what if we do home solar? And I kept hearing that from different people for wherever I went. and, And I think that's when I started to be like, yeah, you're right. Like, this is For me, it's like it's such a big impact to bring power to, you know, a family doesn't have access to a transmission line and be able to generate power from the sun.
0: She teamed up with another Navajo woman, Suzanne Singer, and together they formed a new organization called Native Renewables.
1: I bring that kind of social justice, environmental justice, Indigenous people's rights perspective to clean energy. Yes, it's dominated majority by white men. And I have um, built my capacity to understand this technology. I've built my capacity to understand understand financing. I have built my capacity to see how this actually fits within our communities.
0: When did you transition from being environmental justice, Navajo resistance activist to, you know, renewable energy nerd? (laughs)
1: I think it's when I became a mother. I I feel like I had to, yeah, I I got quiet. I got like, it just like put me in a really gentle space to be able to mother young girls. My activism was intense, you know, because I was saying no to coal was a big deal. It's a political deal internally in my own nation where I was already labeled radical, where I was labeled... Hurtful things from my own people and my own political leaders that just didn't see a perspective that I was bringing. And it made me think about like the future like, okay, what kind of home am I building for my children and my family? And what's the seed, you know, that I'm wanting to plant that Peabody cannot touch, that these political leaders cannot touch, that the federal government cannot touch? Like, what is it that is going to just create that resilience, that hope about my lineage, my grandmothers that fought hard to resist on this land and for our teachings and our identity? And that's what I, like, started to really pray about.
0: Meanwhile, in 2019, the Cayenta Mine and Navajo Generating Station closed marking what might be the final chapter in the coal era of the Navajo Nation. Andrew remembers attending a community meeting not long before the end.
4: And it just struck me at that moment, like we were just spending so much time and emotional energy. I think this was a Sunday or a Saturday. It was on the weekend. And we were there for hours and we were just dealing with this existential crisis of coal And, like, whether or not we should continue with it, what kinds of burdens does it have for the environment? What kind of burden does it have for the community? What kind of burden does it have for the co workers who lose their jobs? What kind of burden does it have for the tribal government who lose their revenues? And so we were stuck with all of these questions. You know, we were just like really pounding our heads against the wall trying to figure the situation out. And I was thinking, like, the people who benefited from this the most, which are the communities in Phoenix and Tucson. They were not in these rooms. They were not in these meetings. They were not pulling their hair out, trying to figure out the future. They were just living their lives like nothing was happening. People were in Phoenix, probably at a pool, having fun, enjoying the cheap energy coming out of their walls and their sockets. I
0: think for the vast majority of the Southwest and the places that the Navajo Nation's coal powered, this entire history was basically out of sight, out of mind. Nobody knows about Peabody Coal. Nobody knows about John Boyden. And now that that era of the Navajo Nation's history is coming to a close, nobody knows about what the Navajo Nation is dealing with, you know, in the wake of these industries.
2: So not only is there, of course, the harm of the coal extraction and the coal burning, but then when those industries start to shut down, you know, there's no plan for how to support the community with the transition. And what does that look like now,
3: Julian? I mean, what is what is the path forward?
0: I don't know. You know, I think that um, there's an immense resilience of imagination on the Navajo nation. You know, I think that it took incredible resolve and creativity to imagine doing something like transforming Peabody Coal's land into a, a solar farm. You know, I mean, I, I can't think of many more images of climate justice than that. You know, but at the same time, the immensity and, and resilience of the human imagination in a place like the Navajo Nation very quickly comes up against the limits of, of capitalism, you know, about against the limits of infrastructure and and the limits of, you know, investors' generosity and, and things like that. And so I think that those, you know, the hard realities of economics and the immense ability of people to have hope for their future, I think those are sort of the boundaries of the Navajo people's future. Andrew's pessimistic about the prospects for the Navajo and a clean energy future.
4: I think it's really hard to accomplish as it is now because the the whole government apparatus is built around the extractive industry experience, right? It's built around large companies coming in with a lot of money and resources, building the infrastructure needed for that kind of business to happen within the reservation. And that's something that you're immediately finding with alternative energies, is they're not like these huge companies like Peabody coming in saying, we're going to build this huge scale um, solar field that we're going to then sell to um, to Phoenix and Tucson. It's like smaller, medium-sized companies, even really, really small like startups that the people are trying to um, initiate that are putting forward that effort, and they just don't have, like they're working within a capitalist economy, but don't have capital, and so that makes it like even more ber- like difficult and 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 harder to uh, to accomplish accomplish your transition goals. So as it turns out, like the only successful solar installation that's happened at a scale that was something that that only recently came online within the last few years, and uh, but you know, of course. It's it's nice, it's like there, it's on the side of the road, and you can see it. But, you know, the, the difference, of course, is that it doesn't employ nearly as many people, whereas like a coal mine could employ 400 to 500 workers.
0: On the Navajo Nation, there have never been easy answers, but against the odds, Wahala has pressed on. She told me about one family she was proud to support.
1: On their homestead, their first question was, will this be able to power more than two hours of TV? And we said yes. And they were excited because they said the generator doesn't last that long to power, to actually watch a full movie, that it usually gets through a half of a movie. He's probably like seven or eight years old. For that to be his first question, was like, can I watch a full length of a movie?
0: That might not sound like much, but on this reservation, it could be the beginning of something green, maybe even new.
1: And so that's like how I see and envision my work and um, want it to be an example for my children and their children that you can do this. You can create and we can lean on our traditional values and we can do this together. You know, all of this doesn't have to happen in some closed door meeting like it can happen here on the ground around this fire and we can make this decision together. And I think those are the teachings that have led us to our resiliency. That's the beauty I would love to see is just going back to these teachings of the sun, to these teachings of where we've come from because that's what's, that it's there for us and it shows us the way.
0: A few months back, as the first wave of coronavirus ebbed, the Navajo Nation Council passed legislation appropriating congressional funding to provide relief from the pandemic. Native Renewables will use some of that money to begin scaling up their work.
1: For me and Native Renewables, we just saw an opening where they started to talk about power lines, you know, funding for power lines. And that's when I said, hey, let's put some money aside for off-grid solar
0: I should have asked this earlier, but what's the Navajo word for solar panel?
1: Mm, Yeah, good question. I don't know. I don't know the top of my
2: head.
0: We should figure that out.
2: Well, you know, Julian, that story ends on a pretty hopeful note, and it's a nice counterpoint to the earlier episode we did on the CARES Act. It's really nice to see that some of the CARES Act money was going towards, uh, you know, good causes and not just a fossil fuel bailout. And it also reminds me of another hopeful fact, which is that the Navajo uh, Nation really brought home Arizona for Biden and helped swing that state uh, blue for the first time in a long time.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Navajo look compared to the United States government and certainly compared to Peabody Coal and John Boyden, like pretty responsible actors in this whole story. You know, at the same time as Congress was bailing out the fossil fuel industry, the Navajo were in probably some of the most difficult circumstances to engineer an energy transition were thinking about that sort of future. And, you know, at the same time, I think that that's not just like a Navajo government thing. You know, it's also Navajo voters. If you look at the data coming out of Navajo precincts in the 2020 election, almost every single precinct went over 80 percent for Joe Biden. And, you know, I think there was a lot of hand-wringing, of course, this election over fossil fuel workers and communities and, um, you know, how they might be swung against uh, Democrats who, you know, were talking about uh, things like the the energy transition. And, you know, it's hard to make that same argument when we're looking at a place like the Navajo Nation, you know, where coal was was a way of life, right? You know, these are coal workers who are showing up and and voting for the Democratic Party ticket and really thinking about what life after fossil fuels looks like in a place where, you know, fossil fuels built, built almost everything.
3: And that's actually what I wanted to ask you about, Julian, kind of what you think some of the lessons are from this story that apply more broadly to the work of climate justice and to a transition towards a post fossil fuel economy.
0: So I think we often think about these things in in silos, right? Wahela comes from a family and a, and a community at Black Mesa that was fighting the fossil fuel industry and, and, you know, stopping the bad essentially is a major sort of through line in a lot of environmental justice work. And that's often sort of separated from unions and workers conceptually, not in real life, conceptually separated from the unions and the workers who are, in those industries, and you know, very often there is, in fact, like a, a racial and a class divide between you know the communities impacted and polluted, and and the people working in the industries. But on the Navajo Nation, it's a it's a much more complicated circumstance where people who are on both sides of of this issue of of the coal mining, you know, are are relatives. You know, they might be married to each other, or cousins, or brothers and sisters, and that sort of a thing. So it's it's much more, I think visceral sort of the, both the benefits that, that come with some of these polluting industries and also the, you know, the real harms that, that come with these, these industries.
3: Yeah. And I think so often we think about those two things separately, right? We think about kind of different forces moving Putting on the brake versus uh, putting on the <laughs> the accelerator, so to speak, and it's really fascinating to hear the connective tissue um, between that work in this in the story.
0: Yeah, and I think we also sometimes ascribe the you know the stopping the bad and and building the good to you know, sort of faceless actors, things like a, a carbon price, you know, that's both gonna, you know, account for the social cost of carbon, which is a lived experience, not like a conceptual thing to someone like Wahela, you know, and then the the encouragement of incentives to invest in clean energy. I think what is really appealing to me about this story is that all of those sort of concepts and, you know, policy ideas and and things like that, they're also personal developments and personal struggles that that someone like Wahela goes through, you know, after Peabody Coal, you know, she herself has to think about, you know, am I gonna advocate for, you know, giant solar farms or am I gonna go for something smaller and, and more residential? And so what I thought was exciting about this was that here is a community that has been dealt one of the worst hands in this country. And yet here they are parsing through uh, some of the most challenging questions that all of humanity now faces, that all of all societies now face, in mostly very responsible and thoughtful ways. People who worked in the coal industry are are trying to grapple with what its its end is going to look like for them. And in the biggest sense, you know, those human stories are what what the energy transition is actually going to look like it might look like some laws and things on paper but on the ground in places like the Navajo Nation I think you know it's going to it's going to play out with um, a lot of drama a lot of tragedy but but also I think a little bit of hope
2: a matter of degrees is co-hosted by me Leah Stokes and me Catherine Wilkinson we are a production of Postscript Audio
3: Jamie Kaiser Sydney Bartone and Stephen Lacey produced the show
2: Sean Marquand edited mixed and composed our theme song Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions.
3: The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. Our website was designed by
2: Caroline hadillac sono A special thanks to the funders and supporters who made this show possible. The Hewlett Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, UC Santa Barbara, and others. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or any other
3: place you get your shows. Or go to our website, degreespod.com.
2: And you can follow both of us, the pod, and our production team on Twitter. You'll find our accounts on the website and in the show notes. And if you're liking the show, tell your friends about it. And stay with us
3: as we tell more stories for the climate curious.